Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and we're going to continue God Talk. Uh, we just had a, a lively hour uh, with Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn, and Pastor Justin Jepson, also known as 007, and he is now on mission. Uh, so he's not with us this half hour, but Tom and Jeff still are. So let us know what your questions are. We'll do our very best to answer them. The number to text your question is 87 87- Seven nine three three two four eight four, and gentlemen, welcome once again. Hi, Bill. Yeah, fun to be back. So, for an extra ju- half an hour. Yeah. So, just so you know, whenever we bring up the topic of same-sex weddings, it lights up the text line. Of course, mm-hmm. right. So, another one has has come in, and this is a a person that has a situation in the family with the, a wedding coming up soon, and both grew up in Christian homes. We plan to attend. Your panel's input, please, does attending the reception time of joy come across as celebrating their marriage? We have a good rapport with both and love them each a lot. Uh, have been able to share what, that we are grieved about the life they are pursuing. It is not God's design. You know, as we talked about earlier, um, Jesus, we don't know anything about the couple of the wedding in Canaan, uh, but Jesus attended it and and made some really good wine, by the way, at the end of it that was, was able to be served. Now, it seems that the, they were family friends in some way, but we have no idea what the lifestyle was of the two people getting married. Um, so, but, but as also, as we talked about, I think each Christian needs to make this determination as they seek the Lord and as, as they think in their relationship with the couple would best serve them long-term to continuing to love them and to testify and to be a witness to them. So if you can do it in a way that you can express that, Hey, we don't think this is God's design for your life but we do love you still and desire God's will in your life for you. And if you can do that by attending, uh, then great. If that means maybe you feel like you shouldn't attend, well, then great too. I think this is a personal decision that you need to make as you seek the Lord. But I I don't think it's a tacit rubber stamp of approval in any way, just as we talked about Jesus at the wedding in Canaan. See, I'm inclined to be a little more, how shall I say it, aggressive on these things. What I mean by that is... If I am dealing with a mature Christian that has a family situation like this, um, I simply tell them, you know, do what the Lord leads you to do. But I would go because you never know the divine appointments the Lord's going to have with Mm. you at that reception. Eat the food, enjoy the food, enjoy the drink, smile, congratulate whoever you have to. But you never know who's going to come up to you and say, you know, I'm not sure about this. How do you feel about it? Or I know you're a Christian. I know you're, you know, you go to church. I know you teach the Bible. How would Jesus feel about this? If we don't attend, well, then who's going to be giving them answers? Mm. Well, it certainly won't be the Lord giving answers. It'll be the devil himself. And so it's a it's a balance of 
Can you go there and represent Jesus? If you feel you can't or it's going to be detrimental to you, don't go. But if you can, be there. You know, there's a a waitress at a local restaurant that I attend every once in a while and go have lunch. And she has tattoos all of her body. She has piercings on her face in several places. But you know what? We've had several conversations about whether or not she believes that God created all this place and gives us all lives. And you know what? She doesn't believe that. She doesn't believe that God created this place. She doesn't believe that God made life. And I've asked her to take the John challenge. You know that one sure. well, Tom, and to read it. She hasn't to this date. Um, I know where she's at, yep. but I'm going to continue to go have lunch there, and I'm going to continue to talk about the Lord with her. Excellent. That's ex- And then I, I can't say enough for that, and I wish I could repeat this over and over for every Christian, is that do not burn the bridge. Keep going back. Don't compromise what you know to be true, but do it in a loving way, in a way that intrigues people that they want to talk to you. I've done the same thing at restaurants. I usually ask the waiter or waitress, hey, that's an interesting tattoo. Why did you choose that one? And they usually tell me what the tattoo means or whatever else. Believe it or not, most of the time it's an identity thing. Well, you know, this, 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 my father was this, and this helps me in my Irish mm-hmm. background, you know, and, and it's real fun to be able to say to them, you know, I don't have any tattoos, but I finally figured out my identity as well, and I don't say another word. And they look at me, they go, well, what did you figure out? And then I can talk. Now they're giving me permission to tell them what the Bible says and who I am in Christ. Mm. Now, I once talked to uh, a friend of mine. I got to meet uh, Luis Palau, one of the great evangelists of our, our time. He's passed away and gone to be with the Lord now. But um, we were talking one time, and I and I was. He, he said this. Let me just get to what he said. He says, you know, sometimes I think Christians are known in the world for what they are against more than what they are for. We are for new life in Christ. We are for eternal life, and we should be known for that. Um, we know what God thinks is sin, and uh, and we can proclaim that, and there's nothing wrong with that, but let's love others. That's the royal law. That's the royal command given by Jesus himself, to love God and to love others. So let's try to do that the best we know how. Mm. Now, when we have... Uh stories of Jesus, this is not related to this last question, but when you hear of story, stories of, of Jesus being with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, I assume that group didn't clean up their language or their act to be around him, right? No, not initially. I would say there's a certain level of rawness, which must have been kind of hard for him to be listening to, hmm. right? No, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. But it didn't, it wasn't his identity. So he wasn't offended in the sense that, how can I be here among these sinful people? This is why he came, to be among these sinful people, to give them a choice or an opportunity that they had never had before in their life. Mm. And that's what I want Christians to understand. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not only being a disciple so you get to go to heaven when you die. We want that, definitely. But it is to be able to step into the lives of people that are lost and start giving them choices. Start helping them to hear things they've never heard before. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, then people get intrigued by that. And I know you talk about the Gospel of John. I've used that many times with people. And people say, well, I'm not really interested right now. And I will always say to them, hey, that's fine. If you ever are interested, you know, I can help you with that. And I'll get calls three, four, five years later. Some of these people nice. will say, hey, I do. What do I got to mm-hmm. do? And then we uh, go from there. Jesus said in, in John chapter 5, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why he came. Mm. Amen. 
All right, my next question, I'm already looking your direction, Tom Parrish, just so you know. Uh, I am contemplating purchasing anointing oil for praying and anointing others from a site made from same ingredients as in Exodus 30.22. But in Exodus 30.22, it warns about using this. I'm having second thoughts about purchasing it. (laughs) Anoint Aaron and his sons also, consecrating them to serve me as priests, and say to the people of Israel, this holy anointing oil is reserved for me from generation to generation. It must never be used to anoint anyone else, and you must never make any blend like it for yourselves. It is holy, and you must treat it as holy. Anyone who makes a blend like it or anoints someone other than a priest will be cut off from the community. Okay. Well... And I think they were very serious about what they were saying. However, you get to the New Testament, there's no dialogue about this at all. Matter of fact, it talks about the elders anointing people with oil. doesn't give a prescription where the oil came from, how it was mixed, or how it was put together. Uh, and I know a lot of our friends, Christian friends, believe in holy water. But the holiness in all of this stuff is not the water and it's not the oil. It's the name of Jesus that covers this. And so I tell people, you know, when I anoint you with oil, it's usually granola. You know, granola oil, because that's what I have access to. But it's not the oil itself. It's the power of the name of Jesus and his shed blood when you anoint somebody with oil. And in that day, in the Old Testament, when they would use anointing oil, they knew who they were speaking for. They Mm -hmm. were speaking for Yahweh. And that is the point of the whole thing. Now, did the other people use anointing oil? Sure they did. People worship Molech used anointing oil and everything else, but they used the wrong name. I think I think you meant canola oil. I think you said. Did I say canola? You, no, you said granola. <laughs> granola. Is that well? I, I'm just you, checking. You, you eat granola. Yeah, you, you eat know. granola in the morning for breakfast. How do you know I'm not mixing that? That's, <laughs> that's true. I just happened to catch Thank that. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate I'm just it. wondering. I was feeling confused. All just right, get the theology right. <laughs> Here's another question. My question is in relation to Matthew twenty four thirty four, when Jesus was talking about the end of the age and says, this generation will not pass until all these things have happened. When Israel became a nation in 1948, did that generation become part of the generation Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, 34? No. Okay. Um, People, this is commonly taught, and people want to see the fig tree that is talked about in Matthew 24 budding and that that represents somehow Israel and therefore the 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 generation that hears these things or sees these things will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened and some say well it's the generation that saw Israel become a nation in 1948 and or the the generation that saw uh Israel take over Jerusalem again, once again in 1967. I think the key is, is who this generation is. And there are, there are large theologies based on the answer to this question, by the way, especially as it relates to eschatology, uh, the study of end times and God's plan for the end of the age. So who is, the key question is, who is this generation? Well, in order to understand that, you got to look at the rest of Matthew 24, which is describing events that are going to come upon the earth, I believe, during a seven-year tribulation period, commonly called Daniel's 70th week. This is the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation that is going to come on the earth. So Jesus is saying this generation that sees these things will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. 
So what do I think this generation is? It's not the generation that saw Israel come into being in 1948 or 1967. It's the generation that sees these things. It's the generation that sees the events of the tribulation will certainly not pass away until Jesus returns at the end of the seven-year period. That's when Jesus comes. That generation will see it. It's only seven years away, and I think that's what this generation is. Good answer, Jeff Dorn. You are listening to Guide Talk, or Guys Who Talk. Great questions today, and boy, I've got some other ones that are flying in that we need to address when we come back. Still time for one or two more. Let me know, 877-933-2484. Thanks so much for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. If you enjoy what you're finding here, consider subscribing to some of our other faith radio podcasts, like mine, for instance. You can search Susie Larson Live at myfaithradio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. Welcome back. Guide Talk is happening, or guys who talk. Great questions, great follow-up questions. Thank you so much for sending questions over, because if we don't have your questions, we don't have Guide Talk. So it's a good deal. So thank you. A couple of things that I want to share. Uh, let's see. Let's start with this one. In reference to attending a same-sex union, I haven't heard you address whether or not you would take your children with you. They would be observing same-sex kissing, and it concerns me that we could lead a child astray by these things they see. What would be your advice? Yeah, good question. I think it depends on how old the child is. I mean, I think you have a a situation where if the child is old enough that they can understand God's design for marriage um, and sexuality, by the way, um, and understand his design and understand how the world has perverted it, well, then, yeah, you probably can bring them, and it's a teaching moment for them. But if they're too young, obviously, you know, we have schools today. This is driving me nuts today. We are teaching kids about uh, well, I mean, uh, uh, not God-designed sexuality, but when we shouldn't be talking about sexuality at all in these young children. And it's happening in our public schools right now, and I think that's a travesty. There's an appropriate age to bring these things up. Kids are going to be exposed to this. I want to generally control when and how they're exposed, and more importantly, what they are taught about it when they are exposed. I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and quite honestly, it was a fairly safe environment. I could go in the neighborhood. I didn't have to worry about anything. Everybody was my dad. If they told me to go home, I went home, that type of thing. We don't live in that environment anymore. And the world is after our kids every chance they can through media, through Twitter, through you go right down through the list. The parents' role today, Christian parents, is not to simply extract their kids from those things, but it's fortifying their kids how to stand up to those things. And we got to quit withdrawing from the world and start going into the world and I'm not saying you have to run around and hang out in all the wrong places, but I'm saying we've got to quit hiding the message of Jesus and not be afraid to speak up publicly and say, this is not the Lord's will. This is not what he wants. And the more people can get to do that, I think the better off we're going to be in this culture. A wise man builds his house upon a rock, right? And we need to bring our children up in training and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians says. Mm, very good. Here's another question regarding Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and the like. Should we seek to hang out in the 
raunchy environments as well, or should we be fleeing temptations? Many people in my life feel strongly about both extremes. Some choose to flee and live a quiet, secluded life, while others have chosen to live in dangerous cities as missionaries. Is there a right answer? Well, it depends, uh, first of all, on the individual, what the Lord's calling you to do. Not all of us have the same gifts. Not all of us are called to do exactly the same. However, every one of us is called to be a disciple maker. So if you cannot, if you do not feel called to go into those raunchy places, but you associate with people who do feel called to do that, how can you be a secondary person to take those people that now have heard the gospel and have somehow it has touched their lives and provide a home setting, a Bible study, something else. You don't have to go into the bars. Let your friends go in there and do that. But there's got to be a follow-up process to these people. And too often, you know, thinking we can just go in and, and uh, you know, get them to repent on the spot is one thing. But people need to grow as disciples. So I would say maybe that's the role you're supposed to be in. And I have no problem with that. You know, there are times I want to buy an island and move out of this world and just, you know, separate myself from this world. But I don't I don't think that's God's call on our life. No, mm-hmm. I think people have tried this throughout the ages and, and isolated themselves in monasteries and whatever. We are in this world, even though we are not of this world. God says to not conform to the patterns of this world, but not to leave this world. If 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 we if God didn't want us still in this world, then he'd have nobody left to preach the gospel to the rest of the world. And so I think like Jonah, Jonah was called to go into a town. He didn't want to go there. He wanted God to judge them, and he got on a boat and went the other direction. And I don't think, Christians, we should ever be caught, catch ourselves fleeing in the other direction when God calls us to go into the world and preach him to a lost world. You know, I don't know of any other way Jesus is going to change the people of this world except through believers who are his hands and feet and speak for him and stand up for the truth. If we expect that's going to happen you know, just miraculously apart from people, then I don't think we understand how Jesus wants to operate. Very good, Tom Parrish and Jeff Redoran. Thank you so much for being part of the extended power panel today on God Talk. If you have time uh, to send a question over, we still have a few minutes left. So uh, text the question to 877-933-2484. So do you think we talk about resurrection enough? Enough. Um, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Um, you know, 1 Corinthians makes it clear. 1 Corinthians 15 makes it clear. It's kind of known as the resurrection right. chapter. And he says, without the resurrection of the dead, then, then our faith is futile. We are still dead in our trespasses and sins. But sure enough, there, Christ was resurrected, and we too will be resurrected. And I think all of Christianity obviously hinges on the truth that Jesus is no longer in the grave. Three days after he was put in, he conquered death. He conquered the grave. The grave could not hold him. Death could not contain him. And he burst forth from that tomb alive, and he appeared to many. And so the gospel is this message, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was he rose again according to the scriptures, and he appeared to many. And if you study Acts, there are seven great speeches in Acts. Each one of them centers on one central message, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, would you like going to a movie with your wife, Jeff, or you know, and 
halfway through, she says, let's leave. I don't want to see the end. But it's a great movie. It, it's a wonderful movie. It's kind of like watching Ben-Hur halfway through. It's my favorite film. And then we leave. And every time we go to see Ben-Hur, we go halfway and leave. You cannot separate what Jesus did on the cross from the resurrection. There are one event, ultimately, and without the resurrection, the crucifixion doesn't mean a thing. And when you have just the crucifixion and that's all you focus on, yes, you're talking about cleansing for sin through the shedding of blood, mm. but the resurrection is the power of the Lord saying, I've conquered the whole thing, life and death, and I am the master. So the whole thing has to be together. You don't separate the two. Um, I So I try to make it a habit when I preach and teach to always put as much emphasis on the resurrection as I do anything else. Yeah, I mean, every Easter we say, he is risen, he is risen indeed. But to say, do we preach it enough? Well, clearly, it's like asking the question, do we preach the gospel enough? And and the answer is no, of course we don't. Uh, the church, in many ways, does not live up to its calling uh, that God has called us to do. And uh, guilt, and I'm guilty of that. Uh, we are all guilty of that. I mean, I w- even Paul said, pray that I might proclaim this gospel boldly or fearlessly as I should. And so he even asked people to pray for him that he might proclaim this gospel uh, fearlessly. That's why I worry about isolated Christians, Hmm. Christians that love Jesus but are isolated from the church or isolated from other Christians. Who's going to encourage you? Who's going to stand there behind you? You know, if I'm going to go into a battle against a thousand warriors, I would like to have some people behind me mm-hmm. and not be the only one standing out there. And that's what the church is about. We are there to be a family together, standing together for the gospel and supporting one another and speaking the truth. You know, if we go out in this world and we get, we do battle, we battle for the truth every day and we get beaten up and we get bruised and our sword gets a little dull and our shield and our helmets get out of whack, we come back together in this thing called church, the fellowship of the believers um, and one of the things that we're supposed to do is to to love one another, equip one another, build each other up, serve one another, sharpen each other's swords, straighten out our helmets, because mm-hmm. the world is a battle. And well, we I, need all those people in the church and, to help us And I've it. discovered the church with all the good stuff, even the bad stuff. You know, I was hungry and you fed me. I was obnoxious and you put up with me. Mm-hmm. There is a place where even among Christians, we have to learn how to forgive how to take care. And that's why there are 59 one another passages, which we don't talk about enough in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Tom, I didn't know you were such a fan of Ben-Hur. I am. Well, here's a little side story because we're almost out of time. So this is probably enough time to tell this story. I met Charlton Heston. Did you really? Yeah, I did. I was doing oh. a radio show in Chicago and he was the next guest in the studio after after me. And I'm sitting there in the interview and I kind of glanced to my left and he's standing at the glass. Oh, and I'm on the air, and I go, oh, my, there's Moses. <laughs> you know? Wow. And so, yeah, I, I think I went into this uh, confused, I can't really talk right now. Cause, and then after the interview, I had a really nice chat with him. Well, I really feel inferior because I met the Three Stooges. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. What can I say? But, gentlemen, thank you for the extended version of Guy Talk. It's thank been you, great. Bill. Lots of great questions. And thank you for sending over questions. And. Um, making Guide Talk uh, what it is because we just want to answer your questions. So thank you for participating and thank you to Jeff and to Tom and to Justin for being here and being such great guests. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Joel Lawrence is here. We're going to discuss Dietrich Bonhoeffer Part 2. That's next.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Welcome back, and a big thanks to the guys who hung out for all 90 minutes for Guide Talk. That was a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. I love talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm in awe of him, and what an amazing story. I think he was 39 years old when he was executed. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, that's right. But my uh, guest in studio is Dr. Joel Lawrence. He's the executive director of the Center for Pastor Theologians, and he is... uh, an amazing uh, man of understanding when it comes to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, because you've written a book. I have. Yeah. Yeah. So that really qualifies you, <laughs> just <guess>. so you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the last yeah. time you were here, we had a fascinating discussion about Bonhoeffer. And, you know, can you rem- can you remember a-, a couple highlights from last time just to get the wheels turning again? Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, I was, I was thinking back uh, about what we had talked about and kind of, you know, as we go on for s- some more conversation, maybe deepening some of that. But I think one of the things that I talked about um, that I, f- I find people are, are interested in is this parallel between Bonhoeffer's time and our time mm-hmm. and kind of where, where do we find the connection points? Where do we not find <laughs> the connection points? Um, and, you know, we talked about that. I think one of the really interesting things in Bonhoeffer's life is how he was engaging with what was going on with the church in the 1930s as the church was losing some of its control in the culture or feeling some of that sense and, and, and thinking that there, I think we have some parallels to some of the, the challenges the church of the United States is, is feeling oh, today culturally. Yeah. And, um, and so I think that there's some really interesting territory there that is, that is uh, fruitful for yeah. us to think about as people who are f- trying to follow Jesus today and, and what Bonhoeffer mm-hmm. kind of signals. Can on we, that. could we tease that out Joel a little bit? Some of those, those similarities, because yeah, yeah it, what's going on today is, Kind of scary. Yeah, it is. And I think I think it, it shouldn't surprise us, right? As followers of Jesus, it's it should be no surprise that uh, life in the world can can be difficult at times and can be challenging at times. And Amen. and and Christ um signaled that that was going to be the case. And we all we weren't always going to be the, the people that everyone in, in the world liked or agreed with. Um but I think what what Jesus also signaled us to is the reality that with that with that comes a particular way of of our being in the world, and I think that's what Bonhoeffer was really tapping into in his his centering on the cross. Um, I think this is one of the key themes. And I think we touched on a little bit in our last conversation, but you know, you read through Bonhoeffer's works, and the the, the cross is always right there. Of take mm-hmm. up your cross, yes, right. That call of Christ to take up our cross, and that that means more than just you're going to have general suffering in life. That means there's a particular path that we are called to walk on. And it is the path of, of Christ's suffering that we are called to, to, be, to follow him into. Um, and I think that one of the challenges that the, we have in the American church is we've not often had to tread that path in significant ways. And I think as we look at where we are and where our culture is and kind of the culture moving away from, from Christianity, um, we're going to have to have a different understanding, I think, of what our vocation in the world is. And Bonhoeffer was really thinking through those things in his 
context, which isn't the same as our context, mm-hmm. but there are some parallels there of that call to take up the cross. You know, early in Bonhoeffer's theology, he started to think about these themes that that carried all the way through to his to his death. I mean, he was thinking about these things from in in prison mm-hmm. around what's it going to look like to be followers of Jesus in a new era, in yeah. a new way of of the world. And I think that that kind of trajectory has continued on and now we're starting to really feel that in the American context. Mm-hmm. Dr. Joel Lawrence is my guest. He's written a book called Bonhoeffer, A Guide for the Perplexed, which is great. Um, and when you talk about Bonhoeffer trying to let everyone know you have to pick up your cross and follow, it sounds very serious. And I think he was very intense, right? Yeah. Um, but I also think of Philippians 3.10 that says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's where most people would like to stop. Yeah, in for that sure. Verse. For sure. But yeah. let me just finish it. And the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Yeah. I, I think it, I think Paul's uh, ordering yeah. of that is interesting. I do right? too. He doesn't go cross, <laughs> then resurrection. Mm-hmm. He goes resurrection. But how do we get to resurrection? Yeah. Just like Jesus did, we go through the cross. Mm-hmm. And our, our life is a life that is an experience of resurrection experience of promise of resurrection but the resurrection doesn't remove cross from us um and this you know you can go back into martin luther's theology who's a deep influence on bonhoeffer one of the he 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 developed what he called a theology of the cross and it was in opposition to what he called a theology of glory which is what he perceived and the roman catholic church to have and what, what Luther is saying is we need to be more centered on this call to take up the cross, not divorcing that from resurrection, but recognizing that resurrection is yet future. We have a foretaste, like some of the language that Paul uses about the Holy Spirit is we have a foretaste, we have a down payment, mm. we have this kind of, um, you know, we have the spirit who indwells us, who testifies to us that we will one day be resurrected, but we're not yet. Mm-hmm. And so the life of the church as a cruciform life ought not to surprise us. And so it's this, uh, you know, this tension of how Paul says we're aiming for resurrection. This is the promise that we have, but the sufferings of the cross are what is the path that we walk on the way to that. And we have down payment. We have taste of it now, but it's not, it's not ours yet. Mm-hmm. That's that's a future promise yet. One of the quotes that Bonhoeffer gave, which I've always loved, is we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. Mm. Yeah, and, and his life is a, is a, <laughs> a real picture of that. One big interruption after another, Absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, in, in his life, you know, it's interesting. He, at one level, you know, I said, one of the things that's always fascinated to me is when he wrote his early theological works, like as a early 20s-year-old uh, person, the themes that he was going to be thinking about were there and kind of played out over his life. But the context of that playing out took him to a variety of different places, a variety of, of different experiences, right? From a professor in Berlin to studying in New York, attending African-American church in Harlem, uh, going to Cuba, traveling around the United States, traveling around the world, right? He, he had all these different experiences. Uh, and in each one of those, I think is really a, a, a picture of this, 
idea of when we give our lives over to Christ, we don't have any kind of uh, of assurance that it's going to go exactly the way that we think it's going to go. So to follow Jesus is to loosen the grip mm-hmm. on our own lives. And, and this is another theme that Bonhoeffer talks a lot about, about what it means to be a servant, a servant mm-hmm. of Christ as a disciple. Yeah. His, his book, Cost of Discipleship, is, I think I read it, what, 30 years ago, maybe? Okay, yeah. And I can still tell you exactly where it is in my library at home. Yeah. Because I want, I want access to it. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it's a great one to have around. I think it's, a, it's, you know, it's one that has, was early translated into English, so kind of hit mm-hmm. the English world yeah. pretty early. It was one of the reasons that he got known kind of in the post-war, mid-20th century um, but I think in a lot of ways, it, it now is the right time to be picking it back up yeah, and thinking about what the, some of those themes. I mean, there was a there was a prescience of what he was writing mm-hmm. there that I think in our context uh, is something that would be we would do well as the church to really grapple with the things that he's talking about mm-hmm. in that book. Uh, Dr. Joel Lawrence is my guest. He's written a book called Bonhoeffer, a guide for the perplexed. And even that provocative title, Joel, and the question I ask is, why would my listeners, why should they be interested in Bonhoeffer? Well, you know, I I can tell you why I have been, and and maybe that will connect to to some people. Um, I think the the, the thing that really attracted me to Bonhoeffer when I was figuring out what I was going to do for for my doctoral studies was... it wasn't just kind of an intellectualized vision of Christianity. It wasn't a, an intellectualized theology. It's very intellectual. It's very thoughtful. Mm-hmm. But because of this experience of life that he had, he was really grappling with frontline Christian discipleship. Who is Jesus? What does that mean for us as the church? He was really grappling with those kinds of kind of gritty questions in a way that, you know, as a very bright, very academically trained person, but he doesn't just sit kind of up there in the academic clouds. He is thinking about truly what it means to walk after Jesus. And because of that, there's a a compelling way that he writes that just draws you in, not just to him, but but for me, really into the into the the life of Jesus, right? As he talks about who Christ is. So that, that for me has been something that's continued to be the case. I don't get bored mm-hmm. of Bonhoeffer, even though I've been reading him now for 20 years and, and writing and reflecting. I, I find his, just his passion and the way that he talks about following after Christ continues to draw me, not just to Bonhoeffer, but to Christ, mm-hmm. to Jesus. It's a wonderful description, Joel, that you just mm-hmm. gave. It really, I mean, makes me want to go home and read Bonhoeffer well, again. I, I think you should. Well, I yeah. will. And yeah. I, I, I should just read your your book when I get home. Well, that, I would have, help. that would help. I, I have it. It's called <laughs> Bonhoeffer, A Guide for the Perplexed. Um, and I, I, you talk about, he talks about who is Jesus. So in your book, you talk about who is Jesus for us today, the centrality of Christ in Bonhoeffer's theology. Can we get a little tease on that? Yeah, so that that who is Jesus for us today is a quote from Bonhoeffer. He was he wrote about that later in his life as he is reflecting on uh, where the church is going following the war 
And this is really, I think, he's pushing against this idea, and this had taken root in, in kind of the German theological academic guild of more of a detached view of Jesus. Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, and German theology had kind of become history. Let's reconstruct the life of Jesus. Let's reconstruct the, the background of the life of Jesus back 2,000 years ago. And what Bonhoeffer was, was doing was saying that stuff's important, but what's actually more important is that we, we recognize that Jesus is with us here mm-hmm. and now. So when he wrote, he did a series of lectures on Christology in 1933, the summer of 1933, just a few months after Hitler came to power. Um, and he begins that with the present Christ, not the historical Christ. In, in German academic theology, the historical Jesus was all the rage. That's what people were thinking about. Who was Jesus back then, 2,000 years ago? Bonhoeffer is thinking about, no, who is Jesus today with us, for us? He is resurrected, which means he is present to us. His call to, to for us to follow him, to, to be his disciples, is not just a call that was given 2,000 years ago that we have to kind of figure out how to bring that into the world today. He is making that call to us now as the one who is present in the church by the Holy Spirit. So he's, he's constantly pushing to Jesus is with us now. He's mm-hmm. calling us to follow him now. Who he was 2,000 years ago is, of course, vital but if we just leave it there and then turn theology into history and then it becomes divorced from us, it becomes the great gap in history that we have to figure out how to, how to bridge that gap. And he's wanting to say, we don't, we don't have to, to turn theology into history because Christ is present now with us. Mm. So what's our response going to be? I mean, that's the challenge that he puts in front of us is Christ in the way that he went to Matthew and said, follow me. He does that to you and to me, to the church today. What's our response going to be? I love that. What does it mean to follow Christ yeah. today? Mm-hmm. We're talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's um, and, and Dr. Joel Lawrence is not only a big fan of Bonhoeffer, but he's written a book about him called Bonhoeffer, a guide for the perplexed. We will take a little break, but when we come back, lots more with Joel. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Thank you for spending time with me today. I don't know how much time you've had today to tune into Faith Radio, but I sure appreciate you tuning in. So thank you. I'm Bill Arnold, and I've got uh, Dr. Joel Lawrence here in studio with me. He's written a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's called Bonhoeffer, A Guide for the Perplexed. And Joel, I would love to uh, have you talk about Bonhoeffer's experience when he came to America and maybe how it can help us today. I know he was a German theologian. Yeah. So tell us when he came to America and what he experienced. 
So he was in America in the early in the early 30s for uh, about 18 months and then came back later in 1939, but just for a few weeks. And I can talk about that in a minute, okay. about what that experience was for him. But in the early 30s, he came to New York City and he was on a fellowship, um, uh, both studying and doing a little teaching at at uh, Union Theological Seminary in, in New York. And uh, that was really, an uh, I think, an eye-opening time for him as he was experiencing a different culture and, and the church in a different culture outside of Europe. He had been in Rome. He had been, he pastored for a year in Barcelona with a kind of German expat church in Barcelona, but he hadn't been outside of, of Europe except for a brief trip to North Africa when he was a, when he was young and mm-hmm. his, he and his brother got run out of a village in North Africa and had to get back to, to the, to the continent of Europe. But when he came to New York, um, that he was in he was in New York City, Upper West Side of Manhattan, and um, during that time, you know, he's studying with Reinhold Niebuhr, who was major theologian. He was on the cover of Time Magazine, you know, back in the day mm-hmm. when when theologians would get on the cover of Time Magazine, kind of known really as as America's um, most prestigious public theologian in the in the first part of the twentieth century. So Bonhoeffer studying with Niebuhr meeting different people from the American context, a couple of other people from, from other places in the world were there. But while he was there, um, he, he was evaluating American Christianity. And one of the things he talks about in, in a report that he wrote to his church back in Germany, mm-hmm. he this talked is 1939. about, this is no, this is 31, 31, 31 okay. 32. Okay. So he, he's talking, he talked about America American Christianity as Protestantism without Reformation. And what he meant by that was was a Protestant church and a a pretty Protestant culture, right? Kind of that Judeo-Christian Protestantism. And in New York, you're talking about fairly mainline uh, Christianity that was was kind of the reigning Christianity in New York at the time. Um, But what he meant by Protestantism without Reformation is Protestant culture but our theology had not really ever been tested in the way that Europe's theology had been tested through the Reformation in the post-Reformation period. So essentially what he was saying was we had a theological construct, theological structure that we talked about, but it wasn't really a tested, lived theology. This is his observation. Mm -hmm. And what he then observed is when he went and worshiped at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, that theirs was, the African-American church was a tested theology because the African-American community had suffered, whereas what he was seeing is largely kind of, largely bourgeois, liberal New York theology hadn't suffered. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of put his finger on this thinness in the American church culture that um, I think is really is really perceptive of of him of this idea that in American Christianity we haven't had to suffer in the way that that you know the kind of majority American Christianity we haven't had to suffer in that way that African American churches had to suffer or that the the European church was really shaken to foundations and had to ask some fundamental questions about what we hold to theologically. Um, and I think, you know, again, kind of thinking about for us today, um, as we are having to 
adjust our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus in our culture, I think we are at a time of some of some significant theological testing. And this is an opportunity for the church today in our time to really think through, deepen our theological roots, engage maybe in ways that we've not done that before in the testing of of our theology and what that means for us as followers of Christ, what that means for us as as the church. Uh, and so I, I have always found that that Bonhoeffer's early experience in the early 30s um, was eye-opening to him. And I think it's it it should be eye-opening to us as we think about our, our time and our place. Now he came back in the late 30s as Europe was about to go to war. He came to America. He was here for three weeks and then realized he had to go back. And the reason that he realized he had to go back was he said, I can't be a part of the reconstruction of the church after the war if I don't participate in the sufferings of the church during the war. In other words, I can't hide out in America and then go back and show up and say, hey, I'm here to help rebuild the church. He knew that he had to to be a part of what was coming. And again, that I think is, is representative of, of his heart and representative of his conviction. Both, you know, it's interesting. He's, he's not a perfect human being. He left, but it didn't take him very long to realize I've got to go back. And he went back on the last boat before the war started, Mm -hmm. got back to Germany. And of course we know then from there, he did experience the sufferings. Even he suffered, uh, death. Right. And why was he put to death? So he was part of a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. Um, And this is, you know, one of the real interesting talking points around Bonhoeffer is he's a pacifist in his, in his theological kind of convictions. But he also realized that um, at some level, reality has to impinge upon your principles. And this is what he he wrestled with this quite a lot, but he was involved with this conspiracy group and it was made up of, of um, prime. The primary leaders were military leaders in the German, in the German military complex. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a, a, a basically an information go between, Mm -hmm. between the, the leaders of the, of the, uh, assassination group and the British government. So he was um, doing interesting things, basically being a double agent, working in the German intelligence. He w- wore German military paraphernalia. There was there's a story. He's with his best friend in a in a cafe when uh, Germany defeats France. And everyone stands up and they start singing the the Nazi hymn and doing the Heil Hitler. And Bonhoeffer stood up and and did that. And his best friend looked at him like, why are, why are you doing this? Are you crazy? And he looked at his best friend and said, we're going to have much bigger battles to fight than just this symbol. Mm-hmm. So he was calculating what's going to be the way that we can impact the course of what's happening at deeper levels and what are some of the compromises that we have to make along the way, which of course raises some, some really interesting ethical questions and 
How do you make those kinds of decisions when everything is turned upside down? What does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be consistent? And, and, And what happens when you realize that you can't be consistent? Then what do you do? Mm hmm. We only have about a minute left, Joel, but a listener said, often I get the feeling we in the U.S. are armchair theologians. <laughs> well, you see what Bonhoeffer did, and what do we do? We, how are we doing? It, it, yeah, I, I think... I think there's, we've had the luxury of being armchair theologians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that we're going to have that luxury a whole lot longer. Yeah. And I, I don't know that I can say, well, this is exactly what that's going to look like. Yeah. I do think it's going to mean we're going to have to release some of the expectations that we have about, you know, if I follow God, then my life will go like this. Mm-hmm. If I follow Jesus, then I'll get X, Y, and Z out of that. Instead, what we have to be willing to do is in a very different kind of a stance, recognize that to follow Jesus is probably going to cost us in ways that it hasn't. Mm -hmm. And I think the church needs to be really started shepherded, shepherded toward that. And, and and I think this is for pastors a time when we are being called to shepherd our churches in some new ways and, and, be careful about how defensive we get against mm-hmm. the culture mm-hmm. and become more offensive with the church in equipping the church to be the church in mm-hmm. this time and place. Thank you so much. Dr. Joel Lawrence has been my guest. His book is Bonhoeffer, A Guide for the Perplexed. That's all the show we have for today, but I'm looking forward to being with you tomorrow. Hope you have a great night. If you missed any of it, go to the podcast, myfaithradio.com. Have a great night. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.